Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Welcome to the show. It's Joshua Nicholson, Cybersecurity America. So protecting what you don't know about is impossible, and detecting unseen threats is equally as challenging. In this episode, we're going to delve into threat detection and analytics. We're going to discuss the best practices for structuring a program. We're going to be talking about the utilization of effective tools and techniques and the improvement of an organization's visibility, threat detection, and response capabilities through use of frameworks and methods. But before we get into this, we're going to do our daily threat intelligence briefing. And so I'm going to bring on our threat intelligence uh, guru, Aaron Bierlin. And Aaron, what do you have for us? Uh, what's interesting in the world today? Hi, Josh. For today, we've got three main things that we're going to discuss here from a threat intelligence perspective. The most notable one are claims that the Russian-affiliated KillNet has been making uh, since the weekend that they have been conducting distributed denial-of-service uh, activity against several hospitals within the United States, purportedly by them due to a rep reprisal of what they claim is a, a Ukrainian missile attack on a hospital in Luhansk, which is a uh, region within Ukraine uh, that has been a, the subject of a lot of fighting for eight years uh, between Russia and Ukraine. But we haven't seen any real evidence of these DDoS attacks occurring. Several of the hospitals that have been claimed by KillNet have not shown any DDoS activity. Some of the other hospitals have said that they've seen it, but it's only lasted for something along the lines of four hours. So right now, we're actually in an information war as to whether or not uh, any of this activity is truly happening and whether or not it's the extent that we're seeing KillNet claim. So the question now becomes, why are Russian actors claiming to conduct activity that's easily deniable by these organizations? Or secondarily, who's telling the truth, who's not, and whether or not we're seeing several different aspects where a lot of organizations legally may not be expressing what's going on at the time uh, for whatever reason, perhaps that they've received that advice from legal counsel. But at this time, we would say that it seems highly unlikely that the claims from KillNet are entirely accurate and that a lot of this was to get attention uh, and also likely to get their activity into the news cycle in Western media to make them appear largely as a threat and also to get the news media to discuss specifics as to why they might be conducting this activity. So likely this was supposed to get injected into the news cycle using fear and convince people that this was something to be concerned about, specifically so they'd ask the question as to why these attacks were happening. And then they would have to explain the reason that KillNet was using, which was the attack on those hospitals. But additionally, it's also likely just to get Russia, Ukraine in the news cycle and discussions because of 
the tanks that have been agreed to be sent over to Ukraine by Germany and Poland, as well as the United States. So that's the first main subject. But it does look like, just to make sure everyone's aware, it doesn't look like any of this activity is actually as severe as Killnet is claiming. This seems more to be an information operation rather than actually a large-scale DDoS attack against U.S. hospitals. The second subject that we will go into still covers Russia and still covers Ukraine, but there is a new wiper malware uh, that has been seen out in Ukraine. Uh, it's Russia Swift Slicer is the name of it, and it was developed, as far as we can tell, by the Russian GRU, specifically their unit 7445, which is one of their cyber units. This specific wiper can overwrite crucial Windows files. This is one of many wipers that we've seen within Ukraine, which is a good and a bad scenario. It's good because from a cyber threat intelligence perspective and a threat detection engineering perspective, we are seeing these new TTPs, this new technology, and this new development coming out of Russian assets, specifically targeting Ukraine prior to seeing them deployed anywhere else throughout the world. But we're also getting an idea of the development life cycle of what is happening within Ukraine. And also specifically for this, more leveraging of new programming languages. This Swift slicer is written in Golang. We've seen a lot of leveraging of Golang and Rust because they're very difficult for a lot of analysts to be able to actually do any sort of forensics on because they don't have the depth of knowledge in these programming languages like they would in a lot of other programming languages. So it makes it difficult to conduct forensics, to conduct analysis and static analysis. And it's also something that can get around a lot of sandboxes that are deployed out because they were not very popular or very prominent programming languages. So likely this is Russia's attempt to get, get around automated sandboxing, as well as make it far more difficult to analyze. But this is a new wiper malware. There's no evidence that it's going outside of Ukraine at this time, but it does give us some insight into what Russia is developing, some of the TTPs that we're able to glean from that activity, as well as some of the methods uh, that we're going to see them use for lateral movement and when more of this evidence comes out and more of these researchers release what they're seeing, it'll give us more depth of knowledge into the weaponization that Russia is using right now on the cyber front. The final subject is an exploit, which is another thing that cyber threat intelligence should regularly track. Specifically, this is a chain of exploits in VMware, uh, the VMware's vRealize Log Insight. This chain of exploits is CVE 2022-31704, and 2022-31711. And this chain of exploits can result uh, in a uh, remote, code, uh, remote code exploitation, uh, it, and it gives full root access. So this was something that was released by the Horizon Attack Team on Twitter, and they were, have been putting out several different blogs referencing this, showing the exploit code, as well as their proof of concept. There's nothing showing that this is being exploited in the wild at this time. But this is once we see these proofs of concept and once we see uh, exploit code written, uh, we typically give about 48 to 72 hours until we start seeing in the wild exploitation and start seeing uh, dark web forums sharing information on this and attempts to exploit especially out of the cyber criminal front. 
So this is something that would be a patch now status. There is a workaround that's available by VMware and patches being released, but this is something to keep keep an eye on. And this is the type of activity that we would normally see cyber criminals start to target and then continue to target for unpatched systems until they run out of an attack surface to go after. But that in total is the intelligence brief for this week's Cybersecurity America. Wow, that's great. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, I think a couple of questions off of that. I mean, it sounds like there's still activity towards Ukraine, but don't they have a power issue too as well? How many computer systems are still up and running in Ukraine and what does their infrastructure look like? I'm just curious because I know the missile strikes have been targeting electrical infrastructure. And so you would figure that there would be less uh, malware attacks on systems because you have a, less of a pool to have to that you could target, huh? So I would go back to my experience in signals intelligence uh, to answer that question. In the Army, what we typically would do is signals intelligence. We want to intercept as many signals to get as much information as possible. But there's specific signals that we want to target. And one of the easiest ways to get the signals you want to target in a noisy environment is to jam the ones you don't want, which on the Russian front, if you're knocking out power throughout a country, what is going to what is the government of Ukraine going to make sure receives power? Critical infrastructure, military systems, anything that's going to keep the government running, which is exactly the things that Russia is going to want to target. So by knocking out power stations, sure, they're absolutely taking out a lot of organizations. They're taking out a lot of people's homes. But what's going to remain online as much as possible is critical infrastructure, which is the viable target that Russia wants. They want to be able, they're almost clearing the landscape of any noise and anything that they still see online. To them, it's almost certain that that's a critical system in an area that they've knocked out the power because that is immediately going to have some sort of generator backup. Yeah, that, that would make sense. So we get rid of the civilian population so you could just concentrate on those that must be critical because they're still up giving, given the power situation in the country. Yeah, that's how I would look at it. If, if I were the one uh, looking at that landscape, that's exactly how I would interpret it. And the exploit change, you said, so we're in the golden period where you're seeing discussions on those exploit chains, but they're not in the wild and a part of active campaigns at this time. Is that right? Yeah, we're still not seeing active campaigns on this. This was released in the evening, actually, on January 26. So we're somewhat outside of that window already. But like I said, it's 48 48 to 72 hours, and it does depend on the landscape. More critical systems, more widely used systems are going to get targeted uh, more likely within that 48 to 72 hours, whereas something that might be a little bit more difficult to chain or a much much more rare system uh, or non-critical system, we wouldn't see that. But we do typically see threat actors within that 48 to 72 hour window create some sort of exploit code, start actively exploiting. And that's when we start seeing those access sales being sold on the dark web and uh, other malware being adjusted to be able to focus on those, similar to what we saw with Log4j and Proxy Shell and uh, those other known vulnerabilities that we've seen released recently. Got it. And, and the vector for these new exploits, is this still email? The vector for this, uh, specifically, they didn't dive too far into uh, what we did see is it's just specifically chaining exploits on VMware's 
on on the, the VMware uh, system there, I, and likely more than likely what they would do is they would either uh, have a waterhole or an email that would exploit it. That is a lot of times how we see that initial exploitation, but also, uh, you know, there's always the potential of just being able to scan, see that something's open and then try to use an exploit code that uh, utilizes some form of brute force or another method of getting in. It It all depends once you dive into the proof of concept to see the multiple ways it can be leveraged. They do love spear phishing if they can use it. We saw that with all these other uh, celebrity exploits, we'll say, or celebrity vulnerabilities. But at the same time, they're going to find multiple methods and vectors of attack, ones that are going to be the most convenient for their piece of malware, specifically uh, if they can. If they can just coordinate that into a piece of malware that sits as, say, a fake Google update or something that they send out as a false invoice that drops like an LNK file or an ISO file, they're absolutely going to use that uh, to the best of their advantage. If they find out that that has a system on it that could be vulnerable, you will see that leveraging come in those different vectors. Okay. So I guess uh, for our listeners, the primary thing is to know is to, to get there and get patch management going on your VM system as quickly as possible. Right? Yeah, get your patch management going, inform your uh, operators and analysts what's occurring out there, give them an idea what they can look for, uh, dive into some of uh, some of this POC, uh, give it to your proper network controls, look for that specific kind of activity that can be indicative of this, look for it in the logs if you can, pick up any indicators of compromise that might be available, but as always, prioritize, add this to your risk matrix figure out what that landscape looks like, use a good ASR methodology of you know having to gauge that patch against the risk. And then if you cannot patch immediately, or if you know it's going to take some time, enhance that monitoring, get people to watch it and make sure that you could see any of that suspicious activity that might be leveraging it. That's just how we have to play this game and not shut down everything and push a patch that might take down operations for, you know, who knows a few days or so in case the patch doesn't work properly. Right. Well, Aaron, I thought that was a great intelligence brief. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And we look forward to having you on the next episode for the next briefing. Thanks for having me, Josh. Thank you. Well, as we transition, we go to our first guest today. Uh, our first guest today is Michael Kinnamer. And Michael Kinnamer is uh, has just been around for many, uh, many years here. Michael has 20 years uh, focused on cybersecurity and cyber risk. Uh, he's mostly focused detection and analytics. He's our lead over at Deep Seas. He's really focused on capabilities, operations lead for detection and response uh, at Booz Allen Hamilton. And then he was a global security architecture and security operations manager. He currently holds a CISSP, CISM, and an ENCE, which I believe is an NCASE certification. I have 10 years of hands-on infrastructure experience, and he's focused, uh, AASE, focused in digital data. And on today's show, we're going to talk about uh, these various different topics, but we're going to focus on what were some of the major challenges with detection engineering. We want to be able to talk about what are some of the best practices, what does a maturity scale look like? What's some of the lessons learned about the various EDR SIM products as it relates to detection? And just kind of go over some of those uh, lessons learned and how we can improve and what does it mean uh, for us in our environment? 
So, Michael, welcome to the show. Glad to have Hi. you. Hi, Josh. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Anything I missed on your bio? I know we chopped it down for a small thing, but anything else you think we ought to include? No, I think that's great. You know, I'm, of course, outside of work. I'm a dad, a son, a brother. And um, yeah, so really enjoy time outside of work as well. But yeah, happy to talk all about detection and analytics today in our mission on fighting the adversaries. Yeah. And I think most people don't realize what does it mean, detection analytics, and, and what exactly do you do, and what aspect of a cybersecurity program that you fit into. So you want to kind of cover that real quick. What is detection analytics and engineering, especially sure. at an enterprise? Yeah, happy to do that. We take the information that our systems, that all of our users have access to and are leveraging in their jobs, and we translate that activity into information logs that help inform us about what is normal and what is abnormal, um, what is a risk um, to the company, um, to the risk to the information, to the confidentiality, the integrity of that data. So in short, threat detection um, is about identifying any sort of risks that could happen to that information. Um, we translate that into as near real time as possible based on a set of prioritized assets. Um, and we focus our energies around the threats and the assets um, to help support the mission of the business. That's um, in short what detection and analytics does. We, um, in extension to that, we're also seeing now within the industry, the term threat hunting. And so threat hunting is the means in which we do that on a long-term basis on data stacks that are incredibly complex and there's not an easy query or an easy way to identify that it's necessarily malicious or benign you know by itself it requires the analyst to connect you know several sequences of events together and these are these are challenges that ai um, which i know we'll get to later in our discussion helps identify you know through this threat hunting capability Hopefully that helps wrap up sort of a good overall summary of what detection and analytics does. Yeah, I think I think it does. I think um, I know one challenge we run into sometimes is the definition between threat hunting and enterprise search. So do you want to cover the difference between searching and then hunting and what exactly does go into a hunt? It's not just search, but there's actual a plan. There's actually a strategy towards it, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in threat hunt, there's a lot of different ways to approach the problem. So in enterprise search, it's a very static um, and focused deliverable, whether that's an e-discovery, right? Or finding a specific match. It's really a Boolean, if this or that, then that. So it's not quite difficult at all to do an enterprise search. Mm. The um, threat hunting is more of a concept where you are able to, um, come up with a hypothesis of a scenario that you're concerned with and then go out and build a plan against the data set on how you can answer those challenges and answer those questions and concerns. Right. It's more theoretical. I think the way I tried to explain it to clients in the past is that imagine your security operations center is 911. It's the police department and everything comes into the police department. That person that picks up the phone has to figure out is this a crank call 
Is it how critical is it? Does medical services need to be out there? Does fire need to be out there? So there's this level of triaging and everything comes into the 911 system. And so that's your security operations center. But the and when there's an incident and there's a problem, they dispatch over to it an incident response person. In this context would be a detective. A detective goes to the house, sees if there's a crime, understands what's going on, makes a decision from there. Where threat hunting kind of fits into is it's almost like that federal task force that buys a couple houses here and puts cameras and are looking in a specific area of the city for organized crime elements. And they have a hypothesis. They have a theory that organized crime members are over here or something that's going on over there. And that hypothesis is you have a design of a monitoring in what you're going to do in order to capture this type of activity. So is that a good way of looking at it in, in, in context, the police department, the yeah. detectives, and then kind of the stakeout where you, you have the cameras and, and everything and you have a hypothesis because you can't do a stakeout throughout the entire city, right? Right. Like it's that. a great analogy. It's a great analogy, right? We've always in cybersecurity used physical security, right, to sort of connect the virtual world that we operate in with something that is more familiar. So, yeah, absolutely. Great, great analogy, Josh. Yeah. And just from your perspective, I mean, we've talked a lot in, on the Intel world, talks about Ukraine and, and how the war impacted. And we kind of saw a shift ourselves where we saw attackers uh, get distracted and all of a sudden we had, had didn't have the same any attacks anymore. They were different or the volume had changed because the war had kind of changed things. So how does it how does it affected detection analytics in a lot of our large customers now? Um, well, the war in Ukraine has definitely required um, each of our clients to focus more closely on what the risks are associated with that conflict. And while most of our customers are not necessarily dealing with direct attacks from the Ukraine conflict, they are still seeing the potential for spillover or third-party impacts related to that conflict. So where we really focus our time is aligning with the prioritized intelligence requirements that CTI has and making sure that any of those spillovers or third-party impacts are covered from our own from our own perspective. So what we do is we translate that coverage in a detection um, or in a in a patch requirement associated with a given threat. And that's uh, evolving really on a on a daily and weekly basis. And so luckily with guys like Aaron, we're able to um, stay stay on focus with with those detections. Right and. Just getting from the perspective, a lot of people want to know is what are the top five things that you would do in the development of a program and your capabilities? Obviously, there are best practices. There's also a maturity scale where you're a low level maturity versus how do I transition to a higher level maturity? And I believe analytics uh, is, is one of the key to detection. It's the core to your detection strategy. So what are those yeah. five things you would do uh, to help drive a program? And what should somebody look at from a maturity scale perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first, let's talk with sort of the top five priorities that I would put on any program. And so one of the really critical items is to prioritize. So you always have to align your detection and your response, your analytics, um, your visibility to your prioritized assets um, for the business. So this requires that you sit down and understand the human assets 
right? The people's identities associated with, with them um, and the assets in which they use um, to make sure that you're able to always prioritize your detection and response needs. And so everything that detection has that has an outcome is going to feed another team, right? So you have to look at the whole detection and response lifecycle as a whole. Um, if you don't, and you just have generating tons of noise and you don't have any priorities, you can waste a lot of time and resources chasing things that have very little value or concern to the business. So that's number one, prioritization. Um, the next thing in, I'm a people person, we can't do this without people still. I know we'd like to be able to just use robots and um, automation, right. right? But it's building a quality staff and maintaining that staff. Right. So growing, hiring, training, and augmenting your staff to match the organization needs are absolutely critical. Um, and I would, I would say that that's um, the second item that you need to focus on is making sure you keep that staff appropriate to right. the needs of the business. A technologist um, doesn't run itself. It's a living creature and requires maintenance and feeding and, and everything else. Right? That's right. That's right. And listen to them. Um, what I mean by that is while they have the technical knowledge, they also still need support with tools. So my third point, the third thing I always recommend is optimize your processes. So manual processes slow the mission. Um, you need to right size the tools and the techniques that your team has, you know, with the right kind of technology. So optimize their workflows, help them do their jobs better. Um, and so you really need to look into that because with the limited staff we have and you're trying to build, let that staff continue to grow. If you have them stuck doing the manual repetitive actions, they will basically grow tired of it. You yeah, they can check out, you can miss things. Um, so lots of problems come, come with that. So number three and number two, they go tightly together, but I do separate them from, the, from, from themselves. Um, the next thing is validate your capabilities. So wherever it is you think you are in your mission, test, test, test. Like in the military, it's practice, practice, practice. So we have to practice. So select and collect the right data. Make sure that you have the right analytics and validate it. So people do this through purple teaming. They do it through breach attack simulation tools. And these kinds of things are really critical to continually validate what your capabilities are and to push your capabilities further further forward. So we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more in the maturity um, story. Um, and then finally, um, you cannot manage what you're not measuring. So in order to continuously adapt and improve, you need to be doing metrics. And so while metrics aren't necessarily sexy or cool or what everybody gets excited about in cybersecurity, they're absolutely essential. And so if you're not doing it, start doing it. There's a lot of different kinds of metrics Happy to talk about that more, um, but how efficient is your team, right? What's your mean time to contain? What's your mean time to detect, right? These are all critical. Um, and if you're not measuring them, you don't know and um, you never will. So yeah, measure them. All right. So those are my five points um, on what I would assess, you know, that are really critical and should be addressed in any program. And then on the other front, you were looking for 
Oh, sorry, Josh. What was the second part of the question? The, kind of the best practices, maturity, and scale. I know you've you've yeah. built these programs, you've executed yeah. them. There's obviously ways not to do this. Like, sure, you could you could get into what is the value of IOCs because we, we get hit with that all the time for our customers. Sure. Right? This whole list of IOCs can yep. run it against everything. And anytime some bad guy port scans me from the outside of the uh, <laughs> firewall, I want to know about it and have attribution to it. So there's this unrealistic expectation by some on the value of IOCs and that kind of activity. So it, okay, it, yeah, cover some of that. And then no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a maturity model of the maturity stack that you look at when you're addressing um, detection and analytics is essentially where you are in your journey. And so people use CMMI or people use different maturity models. It doesn't really matter which maturity model you're using, but you want to think about it if you're early in your journey, you're probably operating at a technical level, right? And as you get more mature, you're really more operating at a business level. So in other words, what that means is all of my actions and activities are translated into business language and business value, right? And not in just technology language and technical value. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we talk about IOCs, for example, indicators of compromise, those, those indicators are very um, static they're time bound. They typically lose their value fairly quickly. Um, the fidelity of them, in other words, goes down over time. And there are certain IOCs that have more value than others. However, overall, they're a great way to validate if something happened to you um, that matched those IOCs. Um, however, what most people find is those are very easy for the adversary to change and therefore they do and therefore indicators of compromise by themselves are not sufficient, right, in a detection and analytics um, capability, right? And so what we do is you go from a technical level to more mature is you start going up on what David Bianco terms is the pyramid of pain, means I'm going to create content now that is more difficult and more painful for the adversary to sidestep or go undetected. Um, and so when the in the TTP arena, you're building detection around the overall technique and the sub-technique. So a more mature operation would be able to then map all of those techniques that they have coverage for against the MITRE navigator, which is the attack framework um, you know, from MITRE. And so the navigator tool helps you really measure and drive improvement across the known tools, tactics, and procedures. And then a very, very mature um, organization would recognize that not all tactics and procedures are covered under Navigator, and therefore you still need to have the hypothesis-driven threat hunting hunting. and research against your data sets to see what other types of malicious activities could be occurring. So those are some great um, outcomes um, that you can um, get as you prioritize your capabilities, um, sort of from a very basic level, all the way to a very adaptive level. Um, And this goes not just with the technology, but with your people, your tools and your procedures, they all all go hand in hand on your maturity um, um, journey. Well, let me ask you a question real quick. So we have some definitions because you used IOC and TTP, right? So indicator of compromise would be an attribute would be what IP address URL. An, yeah. An IP, an IP address, a file hash, mm-hmm. a, a URL. It can be a specific um, 
URI or a specific file that's downloaded. Um, any, any of these sorts of things are traditional indicators of compromise. Got it. And a TTP? And a TTP, uh, which is really associated from the term, you know, tools, tactics, and procedures. A TTP is going to be, for example, the tool Cobalt Strike, a very popular framework that allows adversaries to have command and control and move laterally and perform a lot of their um, their activities in your environment. So a technique would be, for example, lateral movement. So the technique lateral movement via remote desktop protocol, you know, is a technique um, that you can detect. It's also considered a living off the land method because probably all of your administrators are using RDP to move laterally from their workstation to their servers in order to do their job. So, um, but this is a technique. Um, and, and so the, in the, the, in the procedures is also something that the adversary is doing to perform their goal. So their procedure may be to move laterally, um, discover a credential, exfil that credential, you know, crack it offline, and then come back to log into that host and then find information that they're looking for, right? So that might be their overall procedure. So you can look at the TTPs that an adversary does at the tool level, the technique level, and, and their procedural level to um, improve your detection overall for that threat actor. Right. And I guess the, the way to look at it is the threat actors get good at doing their attacks in a certain way, using a certain infrastructure. They built a certain infrastructure to support it. They have a tactic that works for them, and they will tend to repeat that as it's successful and only adapt when it's not. And so that's yep. kind of where we're, you're mapping what are common uh, tactics, and you want to make sure you have analytics that match to those, like, for instance, lateral movement or certain living off the land whatever it is you want to be able to map some of those TTPs and there is an attack miter attack framework where you're a, we're able to see where those tactics, where I have coverage when, which ones I don't, and then do like purple teaming and be able to say, can I catch that activity? Did the log actually record that activity? Did it alert it? And so that's where you would start to test those processes. And that's where your maturity level, I'm assuming is going to go to the next level as you're doing the active testing with your, uh, Yes, that, that's right. That's right. Because when you're actually testing end to end by simulating the adversary or performing even exactly the steps that the adversary may um, exhibit in your environment, and you've really proven end to end through your your data collection pipeline, through your enrichment, your aggregation, normalization, however you're getting that data into your sim, um, whatever tools and controls you have, you're essentially validating all of those activities and that you are logging it or mm. blocking it, or maybe you're alerting on it, hopefully one of the three. Um, what you don't want, right, is to have those things occur and you had no idea, right? So this is back to the visibility um, comment that, you know, with, if you don't have visibility, then the, the game is essentially over like the adversary, right? You cannot detect what you cannot see. And so it is really, really critical. And the, the best way to, to, to do that is, is after you have your initial prioritized logs in collection in place, right, is to begin testing some of these behaviors, you know, in your environment and see how well you're doing. And then drive, use that data to drive to where your goal is. Everybody's goal is different. 
It depends what vertical you're in. It depends what threat you're focused on, right? So you need to align those things together so you know, you know, what good looks like for your situation. Yeah, I think we've experienced where we had uh, some customers that have almost nothing turned on, have no real controls in place. They don't do containment. I mean, they may have an EDR product, but they're using it more like a, a fire, uh, more like a um, malware defense type product. And they don't really treat it uh, with uh, the care that it needs. They don't continue to mm-hmm. add different analytics to it. The visibility is not there. And then they get hit and they wonder, why did this product not protect me? Right. What's going on with this service? And there was no real focus towards it or testing. In some cases, we'll see where the logging is backed up for some reason, some API or some ingester, some cloud ingester broke. And all of a sudden, you're not getting these logs for some seven, four, 14-day time period until you're in the middle of an incident and you need those logs. You need to be able to pull the ASA or the Juniper or those Palo Alto logs. You need to be able to go through them. And that's when you find out they're not there. And yeah. so- it's like almost that active testing increases that maturity. And it's just a have to have nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. So what have you learned from the various EDR products out there as it relates to detection? Some seem to be better at this than others. Some are, you're able to upload your own analytics library, use a lot of that for, for their products. Others, it's very proprietary. They have their own analytics. You can't really see how it's written, whether it really would cover this threat or not. You kind of have to do a guessing game. But what's been your experience as it relates to properly managing a, a EDR platform? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, a broad variety out there. Like you mentioned, Josh, right? You have the EDR tools where the content's provided by the vendor. Um, essentially, the vendor sells you an intelligence feed. Mm-hmm. You have no visibility into the logic or the specific details of what it does detect. Um, the tool can even sit and run quietly, making you wonder, right, what's it really doing? Um, another reason, again, for testing, 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 you know, if you don't have a BAS tool or a purple teaming plan, you know, you should be able to get your red teamers or your offensive security team to set it off. But what we've seen on the EDR tool side is that the more mature technologies and the t- technologies that give you the biggest bang for your buck, per se, um, do both provide intelligence and content to help you with your mission in running the platform, but also enable you to have full visibility into all the data that it collects and to create your own content as you, as you find and learn about opportunities to do so. Um, a number of contents are not pushed by the vendors because, for example, Living off the land, binaries and scripts, when there's a LulBaz project out there, that's a really wonderful resource for this on GitHub. LulBaz really covers uh, over 190 specific binaries that are used um, by adversaries for malicious purposes. But those files just exist in your Windows and and Mac um, operating systems. So they're just literally um, sitting there and can be used in a malicious way or in a standard way by your IT and users. And so the reason EDR tools don't push content, right, for living off the land binaries um, most of the time is because they would be extremely noisy, right? So a good example of how a strong EDR tool can help you is one that lets you build your own content lets you search all of your data that's seen over time, and then understand how you can implement 
a living off the land binaries and script detection, right? That works for your environment, that works for the assets that you're covering and you're monitoring and your detection and analytics program. Yeah, if if you if you don't have that ability, then you're going to be missing, I would say, over 95% of what an adversary does. Adversaries typically develop one or two pieces of malware. And after that, everything else is done with living off the land, binaries, and scripts. Because why do I need to write a program to do everything in my um, goal? I can just use the tools that are available in the operating systems that I'm attacking. And that's less I have to carry in and less I have to carry out. And so that's great, you know, for me as an attacker. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, I remember you were also, you did some uh, living off the land analytics related to like LPR ports and stuff like that using Microsoft Defender KQL language, right? Can, can you mm -hmm. tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, the line printer Damon, um, you know, is a popular, popular um, print, print protocol. And um, you have the ability with um, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint to see the network connections, to see the processes. You can see the um, WMI named pipes that are used. It collects an immense amount of information as an EDR tool. Um, Microsoft is doing quite well in this space because they have kernel access and they're able to really drill in and collect data that not all of the EDR tools are collecting. Um, yeah, all the EDR tools have pros and cons. Um, this is something that within the Windows space, Microsoft has been quite good at. Yeah, and so in the case of the LPR exploits, we were essentially able to understand what normal looks like and then write a rule that's as broad as possible. So while we might have a false positive from a timer every once in a while, um, we are going to see when that technique is used. And so that's quite powerful because even if the adversary adapts the um, exploit, if we were to write a really tightly focused rule, um, we might miss it. If, if they adapt it slightly. So we write the rule in such a way that in the environments that we're implementing it, it has very strong detection. And that what it essentially does is it takes that technique off the table unless the adversary is able to use another technique called defense evasion, where they literally break your monitoring platform, which is another, another um, sort of cat and mouse game here that we can get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And just to switch to another topic, it just seems to be all throughout the news. I've even used it myself, you know, using ChatGPT and, and ChatGPT has been all over the place. I asked it oh, to yeah. <laughs> write a rap with my name and use cybersecurity. And it wrote a rap song and it rhymed and everything. You could even tell it to say, hey, take these three tweets, summarize it and do it in this fashion, in this kind of speech, in this kind of um, yeah. It, it, it's fascinating. But how do you see AI GPT helping in analytics development? I mean, for the longest, analytics seems to be very detailed. There's many different variables to an event. You have to account for it. It'll key on sometimes versus all the time. So where, where do you see like a chat GPT fitting into that? Yeah, it's an amazing tool and it's, it's, it's evolved so quickly. You know, I mean, just um, I, I have a college student. Um, I'm hearing how the they're able to use the platform to create, you know, papers on subjects that are original works that look like they were written by people. I mean, all the way to I have some programming friends that they can use it to literally help them write their code. 
and it's quite quite impressive. I think on the front of cybersecurity, AI is very real. There's a lot of um, companies that are leveraging it. ChatGPT is a great example. I think it's something that's accessible to end users and people who are interested. I know they started out with language and doing translations. Of course, computer programming language is just another language, right? Yeah. So they're able to, um, to, to write very well in many different um, programming languages. I haven't tried it myself with some of the analytics languages we're using, um, but I, there's no doubt in my mind that um, with some coaching that it'll be able to do it um, because it's doing it with lots of other languages today. Yeah, I, I did some experiments. So I, I said, let's, I want to write some Python code. I wanted to connect to secure, using Secure Shell to this server and then connect to this server after that. And it sat there and it write, wrote the Python code for me. And so it was just really interesting to see it do that. Also, some of the show descriptions, several of the other things, you you could take that, you put in the chat GPT, it says, I, I need you to write this better for me. And so far, it's done a really good job on that. It does seem to have a lot of limitations with like data sources. Like I ask you, what time is it here? And what's the best time to do this? If you ask it those kind of questions where it has to go retrieve data uh, and have a source to data, it doesn't seem to work very well. But when it comes to understanding language and asking it to do things and just say, uh, write me a cover letter for a junior security analyst. It'll right. sit there and write you a cover letter for a junior security analyst and, and do a pretty good job at it. I was I was quite amazed. Yeah, I think one of the areas that it would need some coaching is on which information model you're using. And in other words, what the schema is that your data looks like. So the, in order to do any analytics on a data set, you need to understand what data you have, right? What's the relationship of that data, right? The field names and whatnot, you know, in order to help help it understand. I think that it understands the verbs quite well, right? It may not understand the nouns, right? So, but I think when you connect those two things together, yeah. It yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think from the point of eventually chat GPT is just going to be, I would say some translator, right? Just like in Star Trek where you would, you have the little tr international translator and you'd hit the button and all of a sudden you're speaking an alien language and it's, it's being translated back and, and so forth. But I also see where this could really be used to, um, or is really going to have an impact to certain labor markets like marketing or writers. I mean, why hire a bunch of reporters in, in writers when you could get Chad GPT to, to pump out a lot of material, write full blogs for you? Why do you need those type of people anymore? So what, what are your thoughts on how it impacts society in general? It could take out cybersecurity. Uh, analysts too as well? So, well, certainly adversaries are beginning to use AI in their own attacks. Um, so they're learning to model what enterprise networks look like, leverage that AI to help give better um, informed decisions about approaches and methodologies that they could use in an attack. Um, they're actually using them even in some attacks. And so I think that if as defenders, we're not using AI to help with the speed of detection and response, right, then we're gonna be losing that battle. So unless other things are inserted into the program like deception, um, which can delay and deter an adversary, mm. um, it can provide a lot of misinformation to them. It can ha also help mislead their AI by, provided, by doing those types of deterrence and deceptions. Uh, otherwise, um, if we don't have AI ourselves, we'll be in a losing battle. So yeah, and, and AI is certainly changing and impacting the society as a whole. 
So I think as a whole, we're seeing it everything again, like from college students who are supposed to be writing their essays and are not um, because of tools like chat GBT. <laughs> um, but these are all, all things and we're going to continue to see it. Um, heck, I, it, it scared me the other day when my Amazon Echo um, was able to adapt one of my normal questions because I used a different word and it still knew mm -hmm. what I meant. So I was like, okay, all right. They, they understand synonyms now. That's why I don't want anything listening, like Amazon Echo, anything. I have enough problems with uh, that. Can I could just see where I get in an argument with my wife, and all of a sudden the Echo goes, "No, actually, Josh, you said X." And back. <laughs> now, now I have a virtual wife and a physical wife, and I got to fight both of them. That's uh, awesome. One's got perfect memory. At least the other one, I could say, "No, you misinterpreted. You didn't hear that." Uh, Echo would actually play it back the recorded version, so I think it's a little scary, right? That's funny. Awesome. And then just thinking deception techniques, um, you know, back in the day, it was honey pots and honey nets and, and so forth. That's really what you had out there. What, what's kind of the latest in deception um, right now? One of the, uh, I think one of the aspects of a detection and response program is to have honey pots around your network, honey nets, and then having them report into the SOC and being an alert on them. But what are you seeing is a, a low maturity type deception? What are some really cool ones? Uh, if, if, you had to go implement one, what would you do? Right. There, there's entire companies that develop this capability as an overall packaging program. So yes, besides just the honey pots and honey nets, you also have different types of um, tokens. So you have user tokens, um, logon tokens, you have document tokens. So these are things like I can place documents with these tokens in them that are sitting there with misinformation in them that are designed to be picked up and found by the adversary. These tokens help me track where they took the document, where they opened the document. So the adversary also has to be prepared, right, to um, consider whether the information they stole is even good information or not, and yeah, giving up potentially, you know, information about their infrastructure and assets that they operate within. Um, another good token is just um, user user canaries. So user canaries can be set up on, for example, all of your workstations so that they're cached and have passwords in cache on your workstations. However, those accounts aren't actually legitimately ever used. And so if you ever see that account attempting to log on or log on somewhere, Right, you know that that somebody has attempted to to dump your credential. So lots of little tripwires and deceptions that are integrated into your environment. A little more sophisticated deception could be when you detect early a piece of malware that you drop into a sandbox. However, this sandbox isn't made to just do dynamic analysis of code. It's made to emulate an enterprise network. So what essentially happens is when the command and control is allowed to install and make a connection to the internet to that asset, it's got an asset into a virtual deception environment. And nothing in that environment is real. Everything looks quite similar to real, but not real. And you're able to record all of the actions that occur by the adversary in that deceptive environment um, and really waste their time and collect a lot of intelligence about their TTPs that you may not have otherwise known about. Now, obviously, at some point, the gig is over. You have to pull the rug or reset the plug. However, that's great for you 
because now you've flipped the symmetry or the asymmetrical cost of defending. And so now it costs more for the attacker than it does for the defender up till now with just pure prevention, the detection capabilities, our costs are quite, quite much more than the cost of the attacker. And deception in this type of deception particularly really flips that upside down, which is exciting, but still very um, much evolving. And um, I think that we're only starting to see the beginnings of what's available out there. Yeah, that's exciting. That's interesting. That's a great way to to look at it. Where do you see things have changed now? You're seeing organizations adapt more than one cloud provider. We have several companies are Amazon and Azure, and they move into these environments. Gets much harder from a detection response capability to do stuff in the cloud. It becomes more of an analytic issue. Uh, but how do you see this rush to to cloud? Or, or do we see most of your, the customers are rushing to it and don't have all the security controls metered out and understood? Uh, and they're trying to figure yeah. out we're there. But but how is the cloud in AWS and Azure specifically? How does that impacting security model? Yeah, obviously with the public cloud, which we'll we'll just focus on that aspect of it. The public cloud is of course very much exposed, so adversaries know what services are available, how they operate, and how they're published. And so one of the very most critical things is really more on the attack surface management side, and that's reducing and making sure that your configuration is correct. However, where most people fall short is while they may implement those configurations initially, adversaries know which configurations they need to change in order to maintain persistence. So while they may have initially just done something as simple as get the credentials um, off of an administrator, right? Now that they have access, they may change some of the configurations. So it's really critical um, to make sure those configurations don't float, right? And that they stay the way you set them. This is similar to firewall governance, right? Just because I have a deny any any rule in my firewall, um, it doesn't mean that somebody can't add another rule in, you know, in front of it, right? That allows something I didn't really want. And so, you know, this really the similar analogy there, uh, but on a much grander scale because cloud, um, as I think everybody's gaining an appreciation for is very complex. Um, there's a, a number of different um, variables, not only the actual service that you're buying, but the tools that you're implementing, how you're implementing them, the policy, as well as if you're running your own operating systems on top of them or your own applications that could have been developed internally. So now you're talk talking about DevSecOps, you're talking about the configuration management, you're talking about potentially Kubernetes, how do I secure an image on a Kubernetes box? How do I have visibility into a quick protocol that's running on a Kubernetes host? Right, these are all big challenges that you can't do over the wire anymore. And so you have to understand options like um, the OpenBSD plugin where I can look at the network stack of the operating system and look at the data where it really shows me now a translation between the applications and processes running and the network traffic. And so these are these are all big things that take a lot of effort and time. Um, yeah, and so we're seeing a lot of people concerned um, and oftentimes not prioritizing where they can start. And so luckily there's a lot of spaces in the detection area that you can start and have quick wins. Um, 
each environment, and I won't get into maybe all the details of each, but GCP, AWS, and Azure, right, all while similar, have a lot of differences in how they approach it. Mm. And so you, you can you can dive into each of those and we can spend a, a lot of time, but there, there's a lot of really good resources out there just from the three providers on, on where to start. Well, Michael, this has been a great uh, time. I'm so glad you were able to, to join me on today's podcast. I think we learned a lot about detection analytics. We learned a lot about how you would maintain that in an organization. What are some of the challenges with living off the land binaries where you want to look at different EDR products? What makes sense from a dimension perspective? I know like Sentinel One, you have to buy star points to actually do customized rules where other products that's part of the license so it's not just the product's functionality but how is it licensed for you and and what can you do from a customization custom analytics i thought that was all really great information and uh i want to thank you for your time on on the show today and for everybody else i just want to to talk about next episode the next episode will be on incident response in the enterprise we'll also do some more uh, or threat intelligence in the more in the in the beginning of the show, but really focus on intrusion detection. What are some of the best practices, and uh, what is the stuff we we can learn from there? So, really encourage y'all to subscribe to the show. Please hit like. I also would really appreciate any comment or feedback on iTunes, or if there's a little feedback we can you can give on the show. And I really look forward to to hearing from y'all and seeing you in the next show. Thank you so much. Y'all have a good evening. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.